Hello, welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor at WBC, and you're joining us for a series called Being Church. This is going to take a little while to work through, maybe seven or eight sessions, and we're going to do the first four uh, in successive weeks, and then later we'll come back to do the rest. The first session that we're looking at this time is to do with unity. And with each session that we do, we'll be talking about things that churches are um, and, and the things that we do in order to be who we are as the body of Christ, the church in the world. So the first thing we're looking at is unity. And before we read the passage, which is Ephesians 4, we're going to pray. Lord, would you hear our prayer to know you better, to be closer to you, and to do those things together, that we might be a community, a collaboration of disciples in your name, knowing you and following you together. Would you help us to support and encourage one another in all those things? Amen. Okay, so I'm reading from Ephesians 4. I'm just reading the first six verses uh, and I'm reading from the NIV, which is my um, usually my first choice of Bible to do my preparation from. Um, sometimes I'll use the NRSV, or, which is the New Revised Standard Version, or the New Living Translation. Sometimes I'll use the Message. It is sometimes helpful to have different versions in discussion with each other as we look at what the Bible is telling us. But in this instance, I'm reading from the NIV uh, and Chapter four starts like this. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now we're starting this uh, new series that's going to run for a little while. We, we're looking at Ephesians in, uh, in this instance. We'll be looking at other um, passages from the Bible as we go through the series. But today we're also looking a little bit at Colossians 3 and also a little bit of 1 Corinthians 12. We'll touch on a little bit of John's Gospel and on 2 Chronicles as well. I went to Philippians. And I think the reality is that we're not going to cover everything you might think of uh, that we might cover in a, in a series like this one. We're going to have a little look at a few things, including communion, uh, reading the Bible, how we worship, um, covenant, uh, it's the, the commitment that we have uh, to one another as well as to Jesus, serving and mission and giving too. Now, there are lots of bits of the Bible that talk about unity. There are some go to passages and 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 25 is one of those. I'll just give you a little sample of that. We are we are looking mostly at Ephesians 4, but just to give you a sense, maybe remind you if you're perhaps familiar with some of this. Uh, the body is a unit writes Paul the Apostle. Uh, though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. 
for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. That's just a couple of verses, but it's interesting, isn't it, how similar Paul's writing to the church at Corinth there, Corinth being uh, a church in what is now uh, modern day Greece, uh, in a very similar to way to how he's written to the church at Ephesus as well in Ephesians. Interestingly, alongside that, Jesus in John 17 talks about how um, much he wants us to be united with him. In fact, it's, it's in John 17, it's part of a prayer that Jesus prays to his father for disciples. And here in Ephesians 4, we get that appeal for unity, uh, that Paul is picking up some of what Jesus uh, is calling and asking the father to help provide. Together as disciples, we are a group, a community of people in a world that doesn't know who Jesus is. The story the world tells about Christians does vary. There are some great examples that uh, the world knows of what Christians do, although they don't always know that it was Christians who did it. But broadly, particularly in a contemporary sense in, in, the, in the world today, Christians are seen as um, often fundamentalist, um, and by that I don't mean they have a fundamental faith, I mean they have kind of a, an inflexibility, um, an extremism or, or a, a kind of dogmatic approach that makes them um, uh, hard to approach and hard to reason with. Christians are also seen as, weirdly, differently at different times, uh, alongside that also seen as being nice but naive um, and perhaps even ultimately foolish and Paul has something to say about that in Corinthians too that the the message that Christians share is seen as foolish to many people but there is a naivety that sometimes some Christians are, are accused of. Uh, you also get the idea that we are Christians we are um, self-deluded and, and myth followers um, who talk to ourselves. Um, you'll particularly get that from the sort of rationalistic end of people who feel that that Christians are um, away with the fairies because they believe in something so um, at least to these to those folks who criticize so obviously nonsensical and sometimes we even allow some of these perspectives from the world to shape us when this happens um, we become something other than what we are called to be we stop being brothers and sisters in God's family and we become a bunch of cliched characters um, in effectively a playground setting. And this gives us a problem. It's a problem that doesn't come from the Bible here or from Jesus. It actually comes just from us. At any time that one disciple looks at another, or one group of disciples looks at another and says, oh my goodness, what they do is terrible. We, we buy into a way of interacting with each other, which is far from what Jesus prays for for us in John 17 and much more like what the world thinks or sometimes accuses us of being. So have you ever met or encountered a disciple who understands the Bible in a different way from you? Have you ever met another disciple, a believer uh, in Jesus who worships in a way that you feel is either too reserved or too formulaic or maybe too exuberant and full-on, or, or maybe withdrawn. Have you encountered other disciples who worship in those ways, at least from your perspective? And maybe 
you've met other disciples that those who follow Jesus who who have a way of praying that's annoying or, or difficult to follow or makes you feel awkward or or makes you feel small in all of those cases and, and I suspect some of them maybe not all of them but some of them might resonate with many of us I think it's important for us to think about how we feel about those disciples do we feel that they're people who need to be encouraged to do it differently that maybe need to be taught how to be uh, a better worshipper or a more appropriate prayer or a, um, a more faithful follower of scripture maybe we even sometimes think that some of these folks are dangerous influences or or somehow fail to live up to the name of Jesus let's look again at Ephesians 4 that uh, I read earlier as a prisoner for the Lord writes Paul I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all now i think paul is pretty direct in these verses Verse one says, live in a way that lives up to being a disciple, an apprentice to Jesus. If Jesus is our master and we are apprentices to him, then we aim to become more and more like him, to, to develop the characteristics and the ethical perspectives and the, um, the skills of Jesus. So Paul says, live in a way that lives up to that way of being identified. Live in a way that makes you look like you are an apprentice to that kind of master. Verse two then says how to do this. It says uh, you do this by your treatment of each other. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Don't just bear with one another as in put up with each other, but actually hang in there with each other in a way that demonstrates your love. So, and some of this is is a direct echo I would say of Jesus uh, again talking to his disciples in John 13 where he says we are to love one another and to be known for that we, we have a reputation for it with each other so Paul defines the love here in terms of gentleness and humility that's straight out of verse 2 and in patience and in mercy to putting up with each other but like I said doing it with tenderness that's where the love is shown and then in verse three, he says, make the effort. Don't think that, that being united is just going to happen. This is a, a big problem, I think, for discipleship in the 21st century and possibly was in the 20th century, that we recognise that discipleship is supernatural. But sometimes we assume that that means it's automatic and it really isn't. None of us, if we want to become better at playing a musical instrument or better at kicking a football or um, better at playing Scrabble, whatever it might be. None of us expect that just to happen by itself and then feel frustrated when we can't just do those things. Interestingly enough, I have seen that pattern of behaviour um, where you see somebody who is trying something out and they think, well, because I know how this is supposed to work, I should just be able to do it. And then they get bad tempered when it doesn't work out. Mostly I see that in toddlers and children. But we are adults, so we recognise that to be to get to where you want to get to as a disciple or in any other discipline 
you've got to put the work in. So don't think unity will happen just to you if you're intending to be good. And don't assume that if you're all disciples, you'll naturally fall into step with one another. I don't know, that was the experience of Jesus' uh, first disciples, his entourage. In fact, I'd say it's quite silly to assume that will happen. We need to get shot of this lie that good, authentic relationships happen automatically with the right people. They don't. Good, authentic relationships happen as a result of, as a, as a kind of fruit from intention and, and patience and humility and, and gentleness. And having talked about this, Paul then goes on in verses four to six and says, be united because you are one body the body of Christ. You're, you're one body with one spirit. The same spirit of God is given to each with one Lord and one hope. You are many people. And certainly at the point when Paul is writing this to the church in Ephesus, he's also writing letters to countless churches around uh, the Mediterranean. He was aware this is a, this is a big thing, uh, a big movement. It, it may be small congregations in each place, but there's a lot of people uh, around that part of the world choosing to follow Jesus. There are many people but there is a oneness that comes from it being Jesus that we're following. You have the same baptism, you have the same heavenly father who is God of all things and there is only one of him and so you cannot break into pieces something that is essentially a unit. Be united, be a unit because God is one, because your hope is one hope, because the spirit given to you is one spirit. So Paul is telling us that unity depends on two things, that there is one God, and that's something we cannot influence, and us making choices about each other, which is something we absolutely can influence and should do so. We choose to be bound together through peace. And at the end of Ephesians 4, Paul rounds up this way of thinking uh, by telling us to prioritise kindness, compassion and forgiveness. I think I've said before that Ephesians 4.32, which is the last verse of the chapter, was one of the first memory verses I remembered. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. That's, that's Paul's parting shot in this section about unity. So, two, three, two things about unity. One, it comes from God being one, and we can't influence that. He just is going to be God. And two, we can make choices about each other all the time and Paul knows that we have to make the right choices about each other if unity provided by God is to be maintained by us. So all along my path of faith uh, and my trust in Jesus I've needed I've needed unity with others. It's not something that's a nice extra to have it's an essential because I've changed. Jesus has called and led me to change. He doesn't expect me to be the same person 10 years after I've met him as I was when I first met him. He's expecting me to grow and be different and be changing. So that's a good thing. And I've needed the welcome and patience of others. I was talking recently to, a, um, I think it was to somebody in the family, about how I now look back at some of the things that I've preached and think, oh my goodness, why did I, why did I think that and say that? Because I've learned since that it's not so helpful. I'm not the person that I was as a disciple even five or three years ago. So I've needed unity as something that holds me. So the, the community of saints 
holds me because it recognises that I am united with others, whether or not I'm getting it right, whether or, whether or not I've grown as far as I'm, I could have done. Jesus has called and led me to change, so I've needed that love that Jesus gives us as an example to be something that's then fulfilled by the church around me. Jesus has given me his love and sacrifice on and through the cross. And he's given me the power of his resurrection life. And he's given me a call to follow him daily as a disciple. And the unity in Jesus with those others who trust him is how I grow. God has given me his people. Jesus has said, here they are. Here are the other disciples. They are part of your community. They are part of how you will grow. So unity is part of Jesus's intention for us as we grow as disciples and become um, growing apprentices who learn more and know more. Let's take a quick look, quick look at Ephesians 2 as well. Um, let's have a look. Um, no, I didn't mean Ephesians, I meant Philippians 2, uh, which is just a couple of books on from Ephesians. So I'm reading from uh, the beginning of the chapter. It says, uh, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. That's Paul's joy. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Uh, I'm just, yes. Yes. So the unity Paul talks about there is about being united with Christ and leads to a way of treating each other. And it's a recognition that unity prompts a kind of behaviour. It's, it's unity. A desire for unity brings about tenderness and compassion. Uh, and that tenderness and compassion in turn then strengthens the unity that comes about. Unity prompts that kind of behaviour and that by itself echoes this call from Jesus in John 13 to demonstrate that they love one another to a world that needs to know what it's like to be in a Jesus following community. Jesus even says the thing that means people will know that you are my disciples is the way you treat each other and so often we put the way we treat the world ahead of that and we, we think well, as long as I treat those who don't know Jesus really well, it doesn't matter if I fall out with people in my own church. And, and I don't think Jesus gives us that option. By this, all will know that you are my disciples when you show love to each other. So it's not that disciples treat each other well because they feel united. It's because they feel united because they treat each other well. And we have to get past the idea that we only have to treat other disciples well if we feel that we agree with them already. Um, there's something of an echo there, uh, Jesus in the gospel saying, um, what good is it if you greet those who are only, only greet those who are like you and only love those who are like you? He said the pagans do that. There's nothing special in that. If you're going to be Jesus people, you're going to be warm towards those who aren't like you. You don't read the Bible always the same way that you do. And that can be difficult, but we are united not by how we read the Bible, although it is really important. The thing that unites us isn't that. The thing that unites us is Jesus and his spirit in us and the same Heavenly Father that we share. I want to 
pick up on a couple of other um, references. So I said I was going to dip into 2 Chronicles, and I am. We're going to go for 2 Chronicles 30. I don't want to spend ages here, um, but I think there is something important that happens. Uh, so Hezekiah at this point is a, an Old Testament king uh, of Judah. Um, it gets to the point where he feels it's really important that the people celebrate the Passover. Um, the, the history of, of the people of God in the Old Testament is really quite pickly. Um, doesn't always go terribly well. But at this point, Hezekiah says, right, it's, it's really important that we do this and we do it well. Um, and so he sends out messengers right across the kingdom and says, um, come on, all the tribes, not just Judah, all the tribes, let's have everyone in for this. Uh, and they come, they come in large numbers. But not all of them um, know how to do it properly. So they go for Passover and there are certain rules about how Passover is done. Now the section here uh, it says in, um, in verse 17, so 2 Chronicles 30, 17. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all those who were not ceremonial, ceremonially clean and could not consecrate the lambs to the Lord. Uh, and verse 18, although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary contrary to what was written so it's against the rules for them to take passover to be part of this celebration festival if they hadn't purified themselves properly but they did it anyway and hezekiah prayed for them saying may the lord who is good pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking god the lord the god of his fathers even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary now we need to be careful with Old Testament and New Testament stuff that we don't just assume that the decisions made by the protagonists were good ones just because they're the protagonists. I think we've got enough examples, particularly in the Old Testament, of central characters who really didn't do a good job of following God. However, I think in this case what we see is Hezekiah saying, do you know what the important thing is? The important thing isn't that everyone follows the same ritual perspective or has gone through the same processes, but that it's everyone whose heart is set on seeking God. If someone's heart is set on seeking God, they should be allowed to be part of this thing with us. They should be included in the community and its celebrations. They should be able to, to participate in festivals that celebrate what God has done for his people. Because the thing that matters is that their heart seeks after God. And there's something of that as well in how Paul writes uh, to the Colossian churches. So in Colossians 3.13, we get this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. That's a long list. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's an echo again of, of um, how Jesus teaches on prayer and on forgiveness. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity the unity comes from the attitude of love that we have towards one another and we demonstrate that love because we are God's chosen people who he loves so so we face a challenge it's a challenge as to whether or not we will be united there, there are times when unity seems to be a lower priority in the church um, than doctrinal accuracy and I want to be really careful with that because I think good doctrine, and we've looked previously at Titus and, and so on to see things that are like this. Good doctrine is really important to the early church and for good reasons. Um, it's really important that we hold good doctrine and that we know where to find it. 
And we also know how to encourage one another in that way. There are times when um, unity seems to get a lower priority, but there are also times like these when Paul's instructing new churches and he emphasises it really in a really big way. He says it's, it's like being in a family. Uh, we may disagree with siblings, but we remain family and we keep demonstrating love to one another. Not because we always agree, but, but being born into the family means that happens. So if we're born again and are in Christ, then we are united. Which leads me to ask what the threats are to unity. And I'd like to suggest that, that I think, this is my suggestion, that the biggest threats are emotional immaturity, theological difference and spiritual competition. So, firstly, theological difference. It's going to happen that there is going to be disagreement. Sometimes we hear people say that unity should not be made so important that it allows bad doctrine or bad theology to become acceptable. And this is sensible. Your theology does matter and matters very much. Um, the risk always when you want to emphasise a point in teaching like this is that people think that the alternatives are therefore considered less important because you're emphasising this one. So I want to knock that idea on the head. Good theology is really important and it's important that we have sound doctrine and keep teaching it. But note that Paul doesn't mention it in our passages. Maybe Paul assumes that there won't be any wrong thinking. Maybe he just thinks it's all going to be OK. But that seems unlikely because Paul is quite pragmatic about what new churches are like. And these are brand new churches. So there's going to be different understandings and, and characters coming and getting involved in, in, in unhelpful ways. So Paul's determination to teach good doctrine right throughout his letters backs up that he thinks it's important. But there are things, while there are things that are important to be clear up, to, to be clear about in our faith, um, that, that while that's important, there are ways that we can get help with that. And unity still remains an important thing, even while all that's going on. In fact, unity becomes more important while that kind of dispute, disagreement might happen. I want to just, I want to take us on a little slight fork in the road here, because I think there's, there's a, an overlap between thinking about unity and thinking about good doctrine that has already been explored and some centuries ago by the church. So one of the things I think is very important, particularly in an age where people's education levels are generally higher and most of us can read to a reasonable standard, we don't need to go reinventing what unity is or what good theology is because the church has gone before us with these things and tackled them already. So brothers and sisters in Jesus from hundreds of years, as well as from decades and, and in the last few months, have come before us thinking and praying and discussing on these things. And, and in the earliest, earlier days of the church, some of them put together the creeds. Now, you might be aware of these. There's one called the Apostles' Creed and one called the Nicene Creed. Those two are the, probably the more familiar. The Apostles' Creed addresses key themes about what Christians believe uh, and that includes things like the reality of uh, creator God and who Jesus is, the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, the reality of the Holy Spirit, um, the, the fact of future judgment uh, and also of mercy and forgiveness, grace that's given to those who put their faith in Jesus, uh, the church, the resurrection of believers uh, and a complete and fulfilled realized life with Jesus. 
it's quite a packed little document and there are definitely um, Christian traditions where people know it um, by heart, they've memorised it. It's a really good foundation for good theology. So we need to be careful about good theology and we also need to make sure that we make space for people. Now the reason why the uh, creeds are particularly helpful for this is it gives us a sound place to stand. So as we disagree with each other while still maintaining unity, we're able to fall back on the work that churches and Christians did before us to say, how can we stand together even when there are some things that we don't see eye to eye on? So we, we take that kind of humility and compassion that Paul writes about. Because without that, we end up saying, you know, my, my brother or sister, um, who also claims to follow Jesus, um, thinks differently from me, and therefore I will have nothing to do with them. It, that's the risk that we end up going towards if we make good theology more important than unity, or if we don't hold it carefully. So, coming out of that, does, does God need us to have good theology for him to accept us? Now, I, I'd say, praise Jesus, he doesn't. Um, again, it doesn't make it less important but the reality is that it is grace that makes us acceptable to God, not good theology. And if we are acceptable to him, despite our flawed ways of thinking, then we need to accept that others whose ways of thinking are also flawed, are also acceptable to Jesus. And take the example from 2 Chronicles and say, if your heart is seeking God, we want to stand with you and include you in who we are. Um, Yes, and so our unity comes from being in Christ. It comes from what Christ has done for us, not from how agreeable our theologies are with each other. I go back to Jesus talking in John 17, uh, where he picks up this idea and praying for all disciples, Jesus says to his father that they will be in complete unity by being in him. I'm just going to quote Jesus saying, uh, praying, I in them and you in me, that's the Father in Jesus, so that they, the disciples, may be brought to complete unity. Jesus is saying that our unity comes from being in him and allowing him to be in us. We can trust each other because we are united in Jesus, and that's exactly what Paul then says in the Philippians 2 passage as well. So that's, that's the first thing, that's um, theological difference. The second is spiritual competition. And that's to do with believing that I know better. This is built on uh, a kind of pride and legalism. And I want to say up front that I have yet to come across a disciple, myself included, who doesn't have a problem with this. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much every disciple I know wrestles with this one. Sometimes they are aware they're wrestling with it and sometimes that wrestling just spills over. Pride is claiming that I definitively know and that I have the answers, that my understanding couldn't possibly be wrong. I trust in my own understanding, which has often, uh, and I don't just mean this for myself, I mean it for, for all of us, I think, who, who struggle with this or who have encountered this challenge. I trust in my understanding, which has usually been formed by someone else or by several someone else's over a period of time. The first influence for many of us on our way of thinking is our Sunday school teachers, who um, were amazing people doing amazing jobs. Very often the nuances of, of the Bible message 
were things that they'd not encountered themselves. And so we need to grow up from that way of thinking. And sometimes then we need to put down things which we came to trust as definitive because our understanding grows. The difficulty with trusting in my own understanding and assuming that I've arrived at a definitive way of knowing God with the input of others is that that doesn't leave any room for the mystery of who God is. It, it gets us to the point of thinking that we have the ability to fully comprehend God and his ways. And the reality is that there is always going to be mystery in God because of his nature. Alternatively, we leave no room to grow or learn anymore unless the right person tells us to think differently. And as a result of that, our, our trust in each other as disciples is reduced. And that is a huge threat to unity. We are going to trust others and be disappointed. But to trust others is to show humility and compassion, as Paul instructs us, as the Bible tells us is the right way to be in order to be united. Unity requires trust and empathy, so that's the ability to see someone else's point of view. That's um, theologically for us, but also emotionally and spiritually. And unity requires humili humility, so the, the ability to admit that our point of view isn't definitive and isn't the most important thing. Otherwise we, are, we become entrenched, we dig our heels in on the basis that, that I can't possibly be told that I might not have understood this right. That's, there's nothing of a Jesus way of thinking in behaving that way. And then there's legalism that comes with this. So the minute I start saying that people must meet certain standards in order to be acceptable, then I'm like the Pharisees from the gospel stories who, who were letter of the law people and were forever telling Jesus off for not understanding God properly. The moment my idea of the church is limited to those who think like me and talk like me and believe like me, then it's no longer a place of Jesus' love. It's become a place of my way of thinking. It's become my way of doing place rather than a place of Jesus. And Jesus had a problem with that. And he took on those Pharisees and their legalism. Legalism is just half a step away from condemnation and it totally erodes unity. Legalism worries that bad theology will corrupt the church, but we need to remember that Jesus, and we are not Jesus, but he left, left us an example to follow. Jesus went to the corrupt. He called out problems and he stayed with them as light in the darkness and called us to be light in the darkness too. So avoiding those who think differently from us doesn't make us more Jesus-like, it makes us less Jesus-like. Maintaining our purity is a challenge and there are ways to, to focus on that that aren't what I'm thinking of right now. So purity is important for holiness sake, but simply creating some kind of airlock between us and those who think differently is not a Jesus thing to do. So good theology matters uh, and the Apostles' Creed helps us to protect this and people matter. And so relationships within churches matter and differences between people are not a justification for speaking badly about each other, either in church or outside church. Um, or of behaving badly towards each other either, whether that's in the way we speak to each other or the attitudes that we take. And I will add this little bit, even sometimes especially when we're tired. Our tiredness, our, our physical state, our emotional state, doesn't ever justify poor behaviour. It can be make it harder to do, but it doesn't justify it. I'm aware I've been running on for a little while. I'm going to bring this to a close. Jesus in Matthew 5 gives us a warning. 
the Pharisees said legalistically that if you didn't kill somebody, you could treat them how you wanted. Jesus said that wasn't right. He said to speak in anger or to be dismissive of one of God's people is not okay. And so character assassination of another Christian's behaviour isn't okay. And so finally, of those three things, I'm going to just very briefly look at emotional maturity. As a society and as a culture, we're much more aware now about mental health. The reality is that our emotional foundation has a huge influence on how we behave around others. So our emotional foundation will affect how we go about seeking and um, maintaining unity. It is impossible to walk through the doors of a church and say, my my emotional well-being isn't connected to how I behave in church or how I go about being with other disciples. That's ludicrous to say. And so understanding our our own backstory, our family of origin, the, the patterns of behaviour that come from generations before us, the, the impact that traumas, large or small, have had on how we see churches working and how we see people working, all of those things, uh, our inherited theology, our assumptions about church life, positive and negative, they will have an impact on our church experience. And all these things are crucial to understand if we're going to be emotionally mature in our church around others who also follow Jesus. Without emotional maturity, our spiritual growth will suffer or possibly be completely stunted. It is absolutely possible to read this Bible, to, to feel that we've got a connection with Jesus, but to not mature emotionally and so to never grow to become the people, the transformed people that Jesus is calling us to be. There is a, an absolute necessity that we ask Jesus to recognise those things in us that inhibit us emotionally so that we might work on them with him and with other disciples so that we might become the people that God knows we can become. And there's a brilliant book by Pete Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality that goes into this in more detail than I can right now. So if I speak badly of another disciple, any other disciple, whether they're a leader or not, um, that, that's not OK. And actually, if I do that, if I speak badly of another disciple in any context, you have my permission to ignore what I say and to, and to pull me up and say, you know, I hear what you're saying, Mike, but actually, is it OK that you're talking like that? You know, are you really wanting to say that? I should never do that, and neither should any other preacher. Preachers uh, and church leaders are are not okay if part of their ministry is to point the finger at other uh, disciples and say, um, you know, I, I won't be united with them, or I, you should you shouldn't ever listen to them. That's not all right. Um, so that, that's so those those three things are really I think are really crucial to our understanding of how our um, emotional maturity and our um, handling of theological difference and our um, sense of spiritual competition can really get in the way of how we hold unity to each other. If we are if we are united because of our matching theology, then we are not united in Jesus. We are united in matching theology. If we are united because of our worship style, then we are not united in Jesus. We are united because our worship style matches with somebody else's. If we are united because of our um, approach to prayer, then we're not united in Jesus. We're united in liturgy. If we are united because of an approach to understanding the atonement, that the saving work of Jesus on the cross, 
then we're not united in Jesus, we're united in spiritual theory. If we are united because of a particular approach to baptism, then we're not united in Jesus, we're united in ecclesiology. And if we're united because of how we read the Bible, we're not united in Jesus, we're united in Biblicism. The only thing to be united in, Paul's very clear in Ephesians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Colossians 3, the only thing that gives us unity is that we have a heavenly father and that his son Jesus is our saviour. Everything else, however important it might be, is not the reason for our unity. And so our compassion and our humility and our love need to be the things we exercise in order to hold that unity, which we are called to hold because there is one God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all you did in your life and your teaching, in your ministry, in your death and your suffering, in your resurrection, all that you went through to demonstrate to us who you are, what you stand for, how your family is supposed to work and what your community is to be like. We thank you that we have so much that we can learn from you. But right now we pray that we would be people of humility and compassion enough and of love, of a deep fondness and kindness for each other, that we are recognisable as your people because of that love. Would you help us to be united in that way? And would you give us your peace? Amen. So as ever, we have three questions. Uh, the questions are very brief this time. You might want to um, hit pause after them in, in order to give yourself a chance to think about them or if you're in a group to discuss them. Uh, and, but they're quite simple. So number one, um, what are the theological differences that you are aware of between you and others that you think have the risk to interrupt unity? What are the theological differences that, that you feel, um, you, uh, viewer, feel are things that might threaten unity uh, for you? Question two. Um, this is a, and also a kind of reflection question like the first one was. It's really about saying, uh, uh, recognising those sort of spiritual competition element. Are, are there ways of behaving that you feel you do better in a church context than other people? Now, the reason I'm asking this is not so that you can feel um, told off or that those things that you think are important aren't important. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm only looking at is whether those things are becoming a threat to unity. Do you look at the way other disciples behave and think, well, I, I do it better than them and I think they would be better off if they did it more like me. You may be right, but let's identify those things so that we can, so that we can pray about how they might have an impact on our ability to be united. Question three is the emotional maturity question. This is, again, one for reflection. And if you're in a group and you're talking these things through, this will probably be the hardest one to be honest about. I pray that you will have the courage to talk about something that's personal in, this, uh, in response to this question. Are you aware of, can you identify within yourself something that isn't emotionally secure or where you feel that emotionally you need to grow in order to be 
comfortable around others, particularly in your church, particularly in the context of being with others who are also following Jesus? Are you able to identify something from your your way of thinking or from your past which makes that more difficult? And if you are by yourself, write it down and pray it through. Think about it. Give your, give your brain a chance to explore it a little bit. Um, and if you're in a group, see if you can actually be a little bit honest. It doesn't have to be the deepest of your darkest worries and secrets, but see if there's something you can say, yeah, I, I think this sometimes might be an issue for me. I will just to hopefully help open this up a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to tell you all about my deep, deepest and darkest things either. But I, what I will say is that I have had experiences uh, of being in a church that was not united, uh, where there were clear factions. And that has made me in the past quite cautious about how honest I am about what I think. Um, because I, I don't trust, I don't always trust the community around me to be patient with my point of view. I'm half expecting them to shout me down. So that's that's some emotional baggage that I carry from the past, which can make unity more tricky for me. What about you? Well, that's the end of our questions. It has been a, a longer session. Uh, I, I promise that not all the sessions in this series will be that long. But I did want us to have a proper dive into what unity is like, uh, to understand ourselves perhaps a little bit more uh, and to and to be more deliberate, maybe intentional about how we build the relationships that allow our unity to thrive. Thank you very much and I'll see you soon.